Great, thanks Pete very much. You will of course observed, I hope, that that wasn't from the book of Daniel. But the whole of scripture is weaved and connected. And when it talks about something over here, there's a nod and a wink to something else going on over there. And we want to kind of join some themes this morning about what comes to us from Daniel, still at the beginning of the story, and what later on Jesus reenacted as a living parable on a mountainside on further to another meal that we will share in together before we go this morning when we'll break bread and drink wine. So we are in our series Walking with Lions. Use that as a, uh, as a Twitter hashtag and uh, all the, the sermons, including the two weeks ago, Claire, Claire's sermon about fasting, really brilliant. I uh, suggest that you listen to that if you haven't done so uh, already and find it. Here we go. The king's table. The king's table. Everything in Babylon was set up to honor the king. The king thought of himself as a god, literally a deity, because the king, so they thought, was responsible for everything. And so the grandeur of the empire, the victories that they'd had over other nations, was all confirmation and affirmation that Nebuchadnezzar was a god. The empire was the king's achievement. The safety you enjoyed as part of that empire was protection that the king had provided for you. The food that you ate was the king's provision because it all belonged to the king a little bit um, like when we go back in previous uh, generations all the land in England belonged to the king it was all his we don't exactly know as I said last week why Daniel refused to eat the meat in chapter one But I think we've got a good framework to draw out some principles. And verse 5 of Daniel chapter 1, the king, of course it would be the king, assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king or as the niv puts it and i think this niv on the screen is the same version as the one in your, the pew bible the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table they were to be trained for 3 years and after that were to enter the king's service now what's the problem for daniel eating from the king's table Well, the problem for Daniel, I suggest, is that eating from the king's table suggested something about where Daniel's provision was coming from and to whom Daniel belonged. The table you gather around speaks of where you belong. So most days in our home, we will gather as a family around the table Extended family may well join us because we're expressing that this is a place where together we belong. And it's not just that we eat. We could eat in our separate rooms or our separate corners of the house. But somehow there's more going on. This is the table where we have the right to share. This is the place where we are provided for. 
It's true with bigger celebrations, isn't it? If you have a birthday celebration, you'll gather perhaps wider family and friends to share it with you because in some way you want to express that we belong together. You you don't go, I'm going to have a birthday party. Let's find 50 random people to join us. But you go, these are the people that we are connected with, that we are related to, that we want to bring together. At Christmas time, you will bring together possibly some blood relatives because you want to say, hey, whatever has happened this year, whatever's gone on, we do in the end belong to one another. So the table, the meal, is an expression of the place where we belong, which is why in the Bible, hospitality was so important because it was saying you belong here. And that's what did the religious people's heads in about Jesus, because he ate at the wrong table. And he was saying to the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the down and outs, those that nobody wanted and nobody liked, hey, I belong with you, and you belong with me. And they, they couldn't get their heads around what Jesus was trying to say. It's also the reason That at the end of time, there will be a feast, a banquet, a wedding feast, a wedding banquet. That's what we'll do on day one, because it will say to you and I, you belong here. Not just a celebration that we've arrived, but that we've all got a place at the table. Isn't that an amazing thing? We've all got a place in Jesus at the table. So Daniel needed in some way, in this environment where everything was the king's and everything was done to honor the king, it was the king's food, Daniel in some way wanted to resist the assumption that ultimately he belonged to this earthly king. Because what Daniel knew as truth and what he was utterly committed to living out even as a teenager, that ultimately he did not belong to the earthly king Nebuchadnezzar, but he belonged to the universal king, God himself. And so there was this earthly kingdom that it looked like was providing for Daniel And Daniel wanted to say, no, 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 whatever it looks like in earthly terms, there is a universal king and a universal kingdom, and it's his provision I must never lose sight of. And closely related to the idea of belonging uh, is provision not just of food, but of all our needs. Daniel, as we'll begin to understand over these weeks, was looking to God ultimately for his emotional needs, his relational needs, and so on and so forth. And so Daniel wanted to show, maybe even just to himself, to declare to himself that the ultimate provider was not this king's table, but the king's table. The trouble with Nebuchadnezzar was that everything was designed to bring glory to him. And Daniel was going to say, As I come to this table, I need to honor the fact that God is the true provider. That was the deal. Which, to be honest, is a great principle, isn't it? That every table must recognize the true provider. And in some ways, that seems a bit harsh. Providing a meal is a time-consuming and a costly and a servant-hearted 
exercise. Someone will earn the money and someone will plan what we're going to eat and someone will do the shopping and someone will make the food and someone will lay the table. Someone will wash up and clear up and and put away so we're ready to go next time. For every meal, there is a huge level of gratitude to be expressed to the provider or providers of that meal. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, and, And Many of us perhaps are thinking of people that do that in such a mega-servant-hearted way. I have a wife that serves our family in a mega-servant-hearted way in that regard. And so we want to express our appreciation, our gratitude. But Daniel at the same time wants to bring in this other level that says, that for goodness sake, make sure you thank your earthly providers. But there is a greater provision. It is still God himself that makes all of this possible. However it works out in an earthly sense, there is a heavenly reality that is also at work. And also every table must remember the mystery. Because in our modern day, we lose quite a lot of the mystery, don't we? Because when you open a tin of baked beans, they're just there, aren't they? You know, ready to go. You can eat them cold. All those going, err, have obviously tried it. The rest of us are far more dignified than to have a go at that. Uh, and it loses something of its mystery. But the reality is, if you strip back every single meal and take it right the way back, there is a miracle that happens. It's the miracle of growth. The miracle that something that gets put in the ground somewhere grows into something. That's a mystery. Andrew was praying about the, the people looking at science and, and seeing God at every turn. The mystery of the universe is that things seemingly spontaneously, I know we've got reasons for it, grow. And if you walk out in the country, as we love to do uh, all year, but especially at springtime, you come back a week later and suddenly, out of nowhere, a whole field has grown. It's a mystery. Jesus told stories, didn't he, about that mystery. You go to bed at night and you wake up the next morning and wham, there it is. And as we strip it all back, even in the everyday ordinariness, as we gather round the table, there is a mystery that God has made this possible. It's an amazing thing, really. And how do we express that? And I'd encourage you to think about different ways of trying to pause at that moment And express the mystery. I don't know about you, but grace doesn't do that for me anymore. Maybe it's having kids. Let's get it over with as fast as possible because we're starving. And our stomachs have already started eating themselves. For every cup and plateful, Lord, make us truly grateful. Amen. Whoosh, let's go. And so we've shortened the grace to thank you, Jesus. Sometimes Jesus is enough. Jesus, ah, let's go for this. And we've lost something of the mystery, the wonder that the God of the universe somehow is present in this provision. That the very fact the stuff grows, the very fact there's stuff there in front of us is all a sign of his amazing provision for his children. One of the things that we've tried to do is to pause at the end of the meal and to pray. We pray better at the end of the meal, to be honest. And to pray not just for the meal, but to, well, what are the needs? What are we sharing around this table that we can pray for? Because God is the provider of all of our needs. It becomes a sacred moment, a holy moment. 
So Daniel takes this stand and goes, well, whatever Nebuchadnezzar thinks, I'm not eating that stuff. Because I'm worried that he's going to assume that he is the provider when he isn't. I'm worried that I'm going to fall for the lie that somehow this is about earthly kingdom and earthly doing. And he goes, no, I'm not going to get involved in all of that stuff. Every meal, every mouthful, every groan of satisfaction, every pang of hunger is a reminder that God provides. And it works both ways. That's why feasting is a really important part of the Christian discipline. That's why tables spread that look lavish and proclaim God's goodness. That's why eating lots of food on one level is a good thing. The Bible's full of feasts. If you take the feasts out of the Bible, there's not an awful lot left going on. Feast punctuated the history of God's people. And it's really important that we feast well. I'm delighted that the quiche is slipping out of usage in Christian feasting. Because I don't think it captured the magnitude of God's provision. I'm anxious that sprouts are still part of the celebration of the birth of Jesus. I think that's an insult, to be honest. And you need to deal with that in your homes. But feasting is an important part of the Christian tradition. But if feasting is important because it reminds us of God's great provision, there is something else that's equally important. What is it? Oh, that's awkward, isn't it? Fasting. Because we're not so keen on that, generally speaking. But fasting is absolutely part of the Christian tradition. Because when I begin to fast, I begin to reorientate my mind that actually God alone is my true provider. And if he doesn't provide for me, I will shrivel up and die. That God is my true provider. So when I begin to cut down on my caffeine and my head feels like it's going to explode, am I really dependent on caffeine to get me through the day? What does that say about my faith and my relationship with God? When I'm hungry, and we say it makes me angry and irritable. No, it makes me less able to suppress those things that are angry and irritable inside me. And so I'm using food as my functional savior. Does that make sense? I'm saying if I keep myself fed... And, and, and in a place where I'm feeling, whoa, keep it coming on, then the things that make me short-tempered, irritable, and angry, I'm talking hypothetically, I never get any of those things, um, but those things that might otherwise come out, so when I'm hungry, it reveals what's inside me and reminds me where I need to be more dependent on God. Fasting is a really important spiritual discipline. And I know we're, we're kind of thinking, well, why? well, I've managed this Christian life very well without fasting, thank you very much. But as we looked at last week, the Christian life that Daniel and Jesus call us to is altogether different from something of the Christian life that I began to embody growing up, which was basically like, let's leave the world and come into the church and serve God in the church. Uh, And Daniel and Jesus are about, let's leave the church and go back out into the world. Uh, And and if we're going to do what Daniel did, we'll need to be who Daniel was. And so fasting comes back on our agenda for those reasons and more. So... We're thinking about tables. We're thinking about the place where God provides. And there was a beautiful moment in the Gospels when Jesus metaphorically on a hillside spread a table 
And there's loads there for us to learn and unpack together. And Sally's going to come and help us just think a little bit about what happened on that hillside and how that speaks into our lives about what God's doing and how he provides for us. Need some props. So, a few weeks ago, we are talking about harvest. Simon reminded us about the seeds that we were given, the sunflower seeds that we were given in the spring, and he asked us if we planted them. Well, I planted mine, and uh, hopefully, if I click it right... No, am I going backwards? Yeah, there we go. There's my sunflower. Some of you would have seen it when Simon was talking a few weeks ago with our granddaughter on our allotment. So one seed planted grew very little effort on my part. Water, the rain... Um, Simon was talking about the mystery just now the mystery and the miracle from one seed wow isn't it amazing all those seeds just from the one we see it all the time it's all around us but we take it for granted don't we happens every year so just hold that thought We'll come back to it in a while. So the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, it's a parable that's in all four Gospels. That in itself is really unusual. What does that tell us that it's in all four Gospels? Well, for me, that tells me there's something really important in that Gospel. There's really something that God wants to speak to us about. When I was little, that story was known for me as um, the five loaves and fishes, or Jesus fed the crowd. But the emphasis was on the loaves and the fishes. The emphasis was on um, the little boy. And of course, that misses the central thing, which is Jesus. And whenever we read parables and we read the Bible, we really need to look, don't we, for Jesus New Testament and Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. It's all about finding him in the scripture. So let's look a little bit more in detail at the passage that Peter read to us earlier. See if I can get this. Is it down or up? Where am I pointing? Should I be going down or up with my clicker? Thank you. Let's have the next one then. As Simon was talking about, Jesus provides for everyone. To put the events in context, what had just happened to Jesus before we see him feeding the 5,000? He'd just been told of John the Baptist's death. This would have been really sad, really devastating news. The disciples had taken John's body and buried it and then gone to tell Jesus that he was dead. So Jesus was mourning. He was sad. He wanted to be alone. 
He wanted to seek his father's presence and his father's comfort. We all recognise that reaction, don't we? Also, Jesus needed to escape Herod, who'd become increasingly interested in him. Jesus had started to be persecuted by the Jewish leaders, and although he'd started to say who he was and defend himself, he knew his work wasn't done. It wasn't his time to be arrested, so he needed to get away. So as we have this picture of Jesus trying to get away from everyone, imagine it a bit like a celebrity. You know the sort of thing, the paparazzi and the motorbikes and the crowds chasing Jesus, trying to catch up with him. It must have been chaotic. It would have been hot. It would have been dusty. Usually we see the celebrity, they're ducking and they're diving. They send a decoy out one way while... You slip round the other way. Not Jesus. As I was thinking about this crowd this morning, I think I realised that I had in the past, again, a, a sort of Disney picture of this crowd. In my mind, this crowd had always been nicely clothed, happy families running about, very much um, yeah, out for a Sunday walk. But I think recently, the pictures on the TV of migrants, of crowds of women and children and men, actually um, trying to, um, are willing to go as far as they need to go to find what they need. Have you seen them? Have you seen the pictures on the telly? If we imagine Jesus seeing crowds like that, then I think we can understand Jesus' reaction and action much more clearly. When the crowd followed Jesus out of the town into a remote place, what did Jesus do? He had compassion. He welcomed them, it says in Luke. He taught about the kingdom of God and he healed their sick. Jesus provided for everyone. In contrast, what were the disciples doing? The disciples were fretting, they were anxious, they wanted to send the crowd away. Just picture the scene. Here is Jesus teaching and healing. There are miracles happening all around them. The disciples were too busy worrying about the next thing to see what Jesus was doing. Did Jesus get angry with them? He must have been frustrated. Three of the Gospels tell us that instead of sending people away, Jesus challenged the disciples. He more or less said, if you're so worried, you give them something to eat. Can you imagine then the disciples' reaction? What is he on? What does he mean? Has he lost the plot? How can we feed them? What have we got? What are we going to do? Have you ever been in that situation where you think somebody's joking and then all of a sudden you realise they're really serious? I think that's what happened to the disciples. They suddenly realised Jesus was serious. So they started to look around. They started to look to see what they had. They started to ask the question, what do we have? Recently, Andy and I stayed um, by a lock in Scotland. Uh, It was really beautiful. 
Um, it was four miles down a little narrow track. One of those tracks where there's just enough room for another car, not a four by four, not a tractor, no lights, really dark, lots of water on one side. One of those journeys where I find myself breathing in because I think the car will get smaller if I get smaller. Have you ever do that? No. So, I can sort of understand the disciples' concern about being in a remote place, not being able to find anything to eat, uh, and it was getting late. But what was Jesus doing? Jesus did not want to let go of any one person that was there. He was concerned for all of them. He wanted to feed all of them. It was a massive crowd, but there was no discrimination. There would have been quite a mix of people who believed already in him and cynics. But to Jesus, they were already important. They were equally important. And it was a massive opportunity for Jesus to show he could meet all their needs. So each person was important to Jesus, and he did meet their need. Do you have needs? Are you keen to get closer, to push on, to know more about Jesus? Are you hungry for Jesus? Jesus can do anything. What one thing would you ask Jesus for? I left what I call my proper job of work in 2006, as many of you will know. There were many reasons. I won't share all of them, but suffice to say, I knew it was time, and I did it in obedience to God. Andy and I were living a very hectic lifestyle. We were trying to please God and our earthly masters, i.e. BT and the NHS. I had been studying by then for at least 10 years, trying to climb the never-ending ladder of promotion. Looking back, I was obviously exhausted. So I gave three months' notice and I left, not having a clue what I was going to do in the future. We halved our income, but we increased our quality of life and we restored our work-life balance. I had no job, and I suddenly discovered I had no identity. I'd never realised it before. It's the first thing everybody asks. What do you do? Nothing. Raised eyebrows, look of pity. But what I did have time to do was I had time to get to know Jesus. I learned who I am in Jesus. I am the child of the King. And I'm called to eat at his table. He has blessed me with the right people at the right time to help me and to teach me. Every step of the way he's provided, not just spiritually, but physically and financially. I have been healed. I have been blessed. And for those of you that have travelled with me, you'll know that sometimes along the way I've found it very difficult to see the wood for the trees. But that's life. In 1 Corinthians 10, the message version says, No test or temptation that comes our way 
is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit, and he'll always be there to help you come through it. In other words, he will meet you in your need, whatever it is. So what would you ask Jesus for? The second thing I'd like to share with you from this story is that Jesus takes what we have and he multiplies it as we give it away. So Jesus takes what we have and he multiplies it as we give it away. This sounds crazy, but bear with me as we look at the discovery of those five loaves and two fish. This was an obvious meal. It's one that people of the day would have carried around and symbolic, of course, because the disciples were fishermen. The disciples took what they found in the crowd and they gave it to Jesus. Jesus, of course, could have fed the people from nothing. He could have turned the blades of grass if there were any. It would have been a dusty desert, really, wouldn't it? But he could have turned anything into food. But he chose to take what was offered to receive what people had. It was something very small, but Jesus turned it into something abundant. What do you have, what do I have to offer Jesus? And when we offer it, let's look at Jesus' actions. Jesus asked that the crowd was divided into groups, and he asked them to sit down. And Jesus took the food from the disciples and he gave thanks and he blessed it. Then he broke it and then he gave it out. Every person had enough. In fact, there was even spare. Twelve baskets, we're told, one for each disciple. So how does that work? At what point... Did the loaves and the fish multiply? Now, forgive me if you've always found this obvious, but for me, this was something new I'd never seen before. So it doesn't say the food multiplied in a heap. It doesn't say, hey, presto, and there was a big mountain of food. It doesn't say that. It said the food increased as it was given out, as it was distributed as it was shared. Jesus multiplied it as he gave it out. So picture Jesus just continually breaking the bread. Just continual. It just keeps coming. It flows from him as he gives it to the disciples to share with others. It was food directly from King Jesus himself. The disciples are then told to collect up the leftovers. Nothing should be wasted. And there were 12 baskets, as I've said, one each. I think this is Jesus' sense of humour a bit, don't you? A while ago, here's the disciples fretting and anxious, not knowing where the food's going to come from. And then Jesus says, collect up the leftovers. Do you think they got the message? Do we get the message? Let's go back to these sunflower seeds. 
God provides the seed for the sower and he multiplies that seed that is sown. doesn't multiply in the packet, won't do anything. It has to be sown. If the loaves and the fish had not been shared out, or they'd not been shared, they would not have multiplied, they would not have grown. And as the disciples had a basket full of bread and fish left over, we can picture Jesus as the bread of life filling that basket. Jesus was showing the disciples what they needed to do in the future when he was no longer with them. They were to give him out. They were to share him using all the gifts that they had been given. The baskets didn't need to be full in order to be used as long as they were being shared. They would keep filling, keep multiplying, keep increasing. And so it is with us. As we give out what we have, there will always be more than enough. The more we are filled with the knowledge and the love of Jesus, the more we can give him out, the more we can share him with others, the more he will develop and increase our gifts as we use them for his service. So, how full is your basket this morning? Is it full of love for Jesus? Do we look for ways to use the gifts we've been given? And do we offer them back to Jesus for his use? As Simon said earlier, everything we have comes from God in the first place. Jesus gave thanks and he blessed the food. Do we ask? for thanks and his blessing on a daily basis? Do we sit in his presence like the crowd, long enough to receive from him? Do we take time to know Jesus better through scripture, through prayer, through fasting? This is feeding at the king's table. Have you been feeding at the king's table? The crowd that day were fed from the king's table. So it may be, as Simon was talking about, there are seasons. And it may be this morning that your season is a season and you're in a place of need. And remember, Jesus provides for everyone. Click, Simon. You are really important to him. What do you need to ask Jesus for this morning? And if you're not in a season of real need, although I think we all have needs all the time, it's about giving too, isn't it? What do you have that you can offer Jesus, that he can grow in you, that he can share out with others? In other words, who are you feeding at the king's table? These are kind of two fantastic questions, aren't they? What do you need? What do you need from Jesus today? The table. The table is uh, illustrative here of God's provision. It's the table from which we'll share uh, communion. 
Because at most meals, in some way, you break bread. But as soon as I talk about breaking bread, you think of something else, don't you? Because there was another table. And there's a sense in which every table is anticipating and looking towards not just the table of the end of time, but the table where we acknowledge that every need in life has been met by Jesus. When we break bread and we drink wine, we are declaring that there is nothing outside of God's provision for our lives. And I just invite you to pause just for a moment in that space. That he meets every need. Every meal, in that sense, is a communion. And every communion is a meal of provision. So what's the need? Just quietly in your hearts just now. And to whom or to what are you looking for that need to be met today? I reckon some of those in the crowd didn't hang long enough and they'd legged it off home because it was getting late and they were hungry. And they missed it because they took matters into their own hands. Are you putting Jesus in that place of being your number one provider? Whatever's happening on an earthly level, as Sally said, it's all about Jesus. And think about it with me. As we remember where Daniel was, he faced this invitation. Just like the crowds did and just like we do today. And the invitation kind of had two aspects about it. Something you would receive and then something that you would go on to give. To eat at the king's table and to enter the king's service. To eat and to enter. And if you look only to earthly provision, you will find yourself serving only earthly masters. But if we look beyond to the heavenly, to the God-ordained, life-giving provision that's behind it all, we will find ourselves serving the God of the universe. And so will we orientate our lives to understand that day by day, in the simple picnic and in the lavish meal, in the bread and the wine, mixed up with it all, that we eat at the king's table. And because of that, we live out and enter the king's service. So will you come and receive today that you might go out and give? Will you feed others with what you yourself have been fed with?